This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity, and I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I invite you to pull up a seat for my conversation with an award-winning magician and the executive director of Magicana, a Toronto-based arts organization dedicated to the study, exploration, and advancement of magic as a performing art. In this episode, she tells us about her life as a thriving archivist and what it's like to grow up in a magic and novelty shop. Stick around to find out how and why the magical Julie Eng does her thing. Spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Hello, thank you for having me. You're in another country, and so <laughs> I am. <laughs> I trust you're safe from all the chaos at the moment and the. Uh, Awkwardness. Yes, I'm very fortunate to live in Toronto, and I feel extremely fortunate for the well-being of my city. We're doing really well here, so I'm, I'm feeling really lucky, actually. Well, today, I'm hopeful that we can have a creative conversation on uh, many things, but some of the unique parts of what happened in your life is that you grew up a child of a performer, and not just a performer, an exceptional mm-hmm. magician and a comedian and a businessman. And in some <laughs> ways, you know, people talk about a kid in a candy store. You essentially grew up that way, but in Tony's joke and trick shop. Trick and joke trick shop. And joke shop, <laughs> right. Was that in Victoria or in Vancouver? Where? Yes, yes. I grew up in Victoria, BC, and so it's on the West Coast. People forget Victoria is on Vancouver Island. I grew up on an island. It, it's kind of neat that way when you think about growing up, you're kind of in this sort of semi-secluded community. I mean, Victoria is also the capital of British Columbia, so it has, you know, a, a great metropolitan area too, but it's not Vancouver. So big tourist town. My dad just became this self-proclaimed ambassador of magic. And he also wanted for forever to have a trick and joke shop. <laughs> but I just can't imagine <laughs> what that's like to be knee high behind those glass <laughs> counters. And first of all, it's unique to have a dad that can do all that kind of stuff. But the people that came and went from there must have been hilarious to you. My whole upbringing apparently was quite odd. <laughs> My dad was a magician at the beginning before the trick and joke shop. He had a bartending school. He was a bar magician. He was like the favorite birthday party magician, banquet magician. Like he was everywhere all through town. I grew up with this understanding. People knew my dad already. They already knew who he was. And that was a little weird because Victoria's a small town too. And like you're kind of in a fishbowl experience. But at the same time, he he just knew everybody. So I learned from an early age how to stick up my hand and meet people and shake their hand. And so when the shop came along, when I was more in high school, I had sold 
all of his bartending school course load. You know, I was 12 years old sitting behind a big desk and selling <laughs> selling bartending school subscriptions and <laughs> registrations. So, you know, send, selling Svengali decks and, you know, trick pens and disappearing ink was a breeze for me. You know, like I just right. grew up like that. And we met a lot of interesting cats as well because of the shop. So my dad had a pretty outgoing experience and, and character. And I, I guess I, I grew up inside of that, inherited some of it. So I remember in grade school, I'm sitting at the front of the class. I'm short. And I'm a small kid. The teacher says, hey, you know, we're going to do this thing on Houdini. And has anyone seen a straitjacket before? My hand goes up. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> she was like, oh, really? Where did you see the straitjacket? Well, my dad has one. <laughs> I love that. So it's just like my whole childhood is like that. Oh, I love that. You know, it's funny. I have friends that live in Connecticut. Their daughter went to the first day of kindergarten or first grade on a school bus. And when she came back that day, she said, one of her friends said, her friend said, she knows a rolling stone. And her dad was like, what? She goes, which one? And she goes, her dad. (laughs) The kid didn't even know what the other kid was bragging about, but the dad was flipping out, right? right? So I imagine (laughs) that your dad... In your area, you know, the popularity of his performance and the sort of the centerpiece of a trick and joke shop is the idea that people want something to be able to be the life of a party. They come in there in some ways for an alternative adventure. Exactly. You nailed it exactly. The centerpiece of a trick and joke shop is the counter where they demonstrate all the magic tricks (laughs) or like where you see it all, the tricks and the jokes come to life. And that's where I actually had to learn a lot on the fly. It was like working behind a bar with my dad, but, you know, instead of a well of, you know, vodka, gin and rum, I had to have, you know, trick decks. I had the, the prop tricks. I had the books. It was all at the ready. You know, the coins were all set up. We had everything, you know, manufactured for a demo. And you learn very quickly how to read people. We'd have a game. A lot of magic shops are infamous for this. Guy comes in. Okay, I'm going to sell him $25 worth of stuff. (laughs) You have to do that. And we lived in a tourist town. So there was a lot of people just kind of bored. You know, they're just sort of meandering or they're not looking for tricks and jokes and they stumble across this and it becomes a really nice way of of entertaining them, welcoming them to the city. But also, you know, I got to practice a lot to interact with the public at a very young age. And as a kid, that became a really like lifeline of my skill set, which I take today. I appreciate that from my father. You know, it was a great opportunity for me to really learn and real world experience. We talked a lot about this, you and me. It's interesting because, you know, he thrust me into all kinds of crazy situations, but you got to learn to figure it out. So <laughs> most people don't understand how much practice it takes to make it seem effortless and to seem simple and picking something up naturally. Like, again, we're talking with people listening that aren't necessarily practitioners of magic. So the fact is so much of what you're practicing covertly is to behave normally when you're handling (laughs) something in an unusual fashion. Totally, totally, exactly. You are handling with sleight of hand. You're very, very good. And so good (laughs) that there's a moment, uh, I think it was from a magic convention, where you and your dad are performing sort of a comic character, which is, I'll call it a pint-sized magician. It's like a your dad is playing the top half, right? The torso. Yes. And he's got his hands in some shoes, so he's he's half size on a table. And then he looks like he's uh, diminutive, is what it looks like. That's great. Right. I'm trying to do it without saying anything inappropriate. So he's (laughs) he's height challenged, and but. 
<laughs> you're the hands in the shirt out front and exactly. you're doing all the sleight of hand completely blind. You're yes. he's he's completely blocking what you're doing and you're reaching into his pockets and taking out the cards and you're changing the dollar bill or where there's a little bit of whimsy because he's the charismatic face of the character and he can see like <laughs> if you've got the dollar bill upside down and he's like, "Yes, let me just turn it over." Like he's communicating to you in the dialogue. Yes. And yet, yes, because it's so much fun, people don't really realize that you're performing these things with cards that are hard enough to do when you can see it. It's so great. So great. It was funny on so many levels because it was for a, a trade conference, like a magic conference. So the the joke was it's typically the other way around. Like the bigger guy is usually the arms and the, little, uh -huh. the smaller person is <laughs> going to be the front guy because it's a physical thing. Like the guy, sure. the big guy has to reach around the smaller guy. Right, right. <laughs> and you're like smushed against the next guy. Like it's, you got to, you know, but you know, this is my dad. So I'm, I can't see and I'm, I'm like hugging, bear hugging my dad around, but I can't see anything. And it's hilarious because he knows I can't see anything. And he's, he's guiding me along and I'm going to give him the gears if he's giving me a hard time because right. I'm not going to always right. cooperate. It, look, it's a very funny look and oh, it's so he, great. that's his character. That was his character. Yeah. And I also love that when he would say something, you had control of the hand. So if you wanted to gesture or do something, you know, or scratch his face yeah, exactly. or whatever, it's just, it's just such a, it kind of shows us your connection to your dad because you can't do that kind of intimate performance without a bond that is strong enough to serve as each other's voice or hands. I used to tease him by my sister and I grew up listening to my father at every single show. I knew these routines inside and out, and I could actually do them in my sleep. I could still do his routines today. And it was funny because we used to tease him in the back, you know, he'd be giving his monologue of something or the other, and we would be mocking him. <laughs> in the backstage. Oh, here we go again with this thing. And, you know, and so he was putting it to good work. So when you were really young, and I know your sister's younger than you, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And when you were really young, did you ever have to like sit inside of a box and wait to be produced or do anything like that? Totally. And did you, okay. Did you, did you fear you were going to come out at the wrong time or do something? Like I, when you're little, it just seems like it would be like, you don't want to ruin your dad's act. <laughs> it's, you know, I think about this because I have a six-year-old nephew and yeah. and he is a real monkey. Like he is all over the place all the time. And I'm like, I didn't grow up like that. I did what I was told. You know, I had to hide in a box for forever, you know, <laughs> like forever. And my sister's on top of me, you know, and I'm on top of my mother. <laughs> Like the, he, the three of you are nested in the box <laughs> waiting to come out? Yes. My father hid the three of us, plus all of like every houseware possible. There were handkerchiefs, chandeliers, feathered flowers. Right. Like it was ridiculous. So we would be nested. And so it was a long time that I had to sit there like that. <laughs> and and I, my sister just sat on top of me. Like we just had to wait. <laughs> and my whole training was being popped in a box. <laughs> I have no claustrophobia. No, I can imagine not. And certainly, I kind of can't tell if you're an introvert or an extrovert. It seems like you're an extroverted person, right? Yes. You have tendencies. But because you spend so much time with books and films and archives and working on your own, so am I? how do I read you at that point? Are you kind of you know, a hybrid? That is interesting. I... I think a lot of people are surprised when I say I am a bit of an introvert. You know, I'm a very private person for someone who leads a somewhat 
public life. Like they, people who see me in public don't believe me when I say, oh, I'm a little bit of an introvert, but it's exactly what you flagged. I, I love working on my own on creative projects. Like I, I've worked on several books. Magic Canada does many things and one of them is publishing. And I have just really enjoyed this experience of learning about the process, the design, editing, piecing these things together, working it out with the authors. And it's been really interesting because I have to spend a great deal of time on my own mapping things out, reading stuff, you know, and I love that experience. I love diving in and being on my own and just letting my mind kind of explore these these different terrains. And that's kind of how I got into photography. I, I fell into it <laughs> out of need, like, okay, well, how do we illustrate that? Well, let's take a picture. Okay, I can do that. You know, <laughs> the next thing you know, I took, I've been taking a lot of pictures <laughs> ever since. <laughs> So it's it's part of the I think that's part of the character of how I have seen a lot of magicians actually. It's it's interesting that you flag that. I always consider the magicians are essentially a producer that put on a, a costume and go out and perform. <laughs> like cuz they're always logistically solving their problems. They got a hot glue gun and they're fixing it backstage <laughs> yes. and they're repacking the silks yes. or whatever they're yes. doing right there. They're everything. I would consider you to be a unique person in that you carry a balanced brain of the business and the administrative and entrepreneurship with the outgoing performer. So maybe first break down for me, what percentage of your life is administrative versus performative? It's interesting. I, I haven't thought of it like that. It's fly by the seat of your pants as you need it. You know, if we're on tour, I'm working like a, like a crazy person from company management to making sure like the props have arrived properly. I got to set them up. Is everything here? Is something broken? Do I have to reset something because something else is missing? Like that's part of my logistics job. And that's pseudo admin. It's pseudo uh, performer. Cause as a performer, you want to make sure the right things are there. You can't just have any old stool. It has to be the right stool, you know, because it's got to balance this or manage that or et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, in the slower times, I spend a great deal of time administratively organizing stuff. Okay, you know, I, I want to be able to uh, send that contract out or I have to be able to send the promo material out or where's the package for this? Like we have to continue to sell as well. Then you have to also be organized in general and to find stuff all the time. Like Magicana is wide ranging. And I've learned to manage, you know, the photography book project files and uh, which is separate from the, from the archiving of the film files, which is totally different from the performance files that you've got to arrange. Like I work a lot with kids and seniors. So there's a lot of privacy issues that we want to take care of, you know, things like that. You got to manage all of these things at once. So I, I think by having so many hats to wear, I keep them all kind of floating as I need them. But I love that I have have had the experiences I've had to teach me how to like be super organized. So when I when I do all these things, I'm not a creative mess in that realm. You know, I like order. I need to see where things are going and I need to be able to have this, this, and this sent out. You know, like I need to be able to go and get it and pop it in and mail it off or or you know, in terms of email or or sending stuff off. I love that sense of I know where it is. I can find it. I need that so badly when I'm doing like any kind of book production. It is scary otherwise. I have now taken great pride in that because we can locate so many things now because I've taken the extra steps to organize my chaotic life. So I don't break it down by by percentages that way. I do it by need. And yet, because I do a little bit every day, it's always organized in my mind. <laughs> 
I think that's an important note for all creative folks is that regardless of what your system is, having a system, having a routine, having a ritual actually gives you some stability. You're curating archives of historical footage and films. I, I don't even know how big your archives are or how much stuff there is. <laughs> it's scary how big. <laughs> the archives are are really fun and unique for me. Now, remember, I'm in magic, and this is about magic history in, for a large part. We believe at Magicana that the idea of educating the public by providing information and resources for free for the public with a curatorial guide is really important to being able to elevate the appreciation for magic. So the archives become this really great opportunity because let's say you wanted to, you, you saw a magician and you wanted to learn more. You had a genuine curiosity. Well, if you visited Magicana's screening room, you could look up that magician. You could look up the trick that that magician was performing. You could learn more about that style of performance or more about that era of performance. Like we can, we've broken these areas down into these really neat meta tags of how you want to search out some of the video. But the idea of it is to make it available, not shotgun, like let's just put some videos up. We're retooling the site so that we can create a curatorial guide. There's a great magician, Channing Pollock, who was, I believe, one of the most copied magicians. He was a special kind of magician where he would produce doves in this really elegant and very magical way. And he was a tall, elegant, charming man. And he carried himself in this really particularly elegant way, very classic way. And a lot of magicians have wanted to emulate to be like him and to copy him. It's really hard to find great footage of him. And so now Magic Canada is going to make that available. But why? What makes that great? So by creating this small, almost like a little mini exhibition, this is what's great because of this. Look out for this. You'll see this. Like we can help build some appreciation for the skill that it takes to build that kind of effortlessness. And as you were pointing out earlier, Pat, the idea that it's so practiced, it looks effortless. How do you find that balance between over-practicing and executing in the moment? So it's it's an exciting project in many ways because I think we can shift the view of magic. And that's really a big part of where I want to make some impact and some inroads with the websites. Cool. Well, magic, in my eyes, is always a bit of theater. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm curious, why should people care about the history of magic itself? Why is that a subgenre of other performance or theater in your eyes? Well, I think it's important to understand the foundation and where it comes from. And we tend to have an overabundance of resources right now where people are being able to buy very easily, steal in terms of copycat, plagiarize very easily. And it's an era where we don't necessarily kind of look at what is it that we're doing and where is it coming from? And I think in having that history, having that foundation and appreciating it more immediately, going through the effort of learning more about it, you have a new appreciation. You just can't help but understand the value of that skill or what it took to get there or the struggle. If someone's selling you a product, for example, you can appreciate why there is a level of a certain price tag on that particular object or, or information that you might be buying. Maybe it's in a book, maybe it's in a download where it gives you some technique. But by having the appreciation of the historical value of the journey, understanding the journey a bit more, really actually creates the opportunity for you as now appreciated student of this art or this form or this technique, you can actually have a little bit more understanding and maybe then elevate or change or, you know, execute further. But without knowing where you're coming from, 
how can you forward something? You know, what's, do you know what I mean? You need to look back a little bit to move forward. I really like that. I'm a very nostalgic guy in the nature of the way I write, but I do think that sometimes things get so progressive where people want to be so future thinking, they don't realize that much of the work has been done for them to help that. If you're looking up a floating lady trick or, or whatever, a levitation, for example, there's probably 20 versions that are done differently that can help the work. You can then invent outside of those methods. It, it just seems like that there's so much value, not just in crediting and appropriately defining where these ideas come from. Sometimes I'm a little disappointed in how derivative of people will watch someone else or another person person show and their idea comes directly from the person as opposed to a life experience or incubation period of being in an empty hall working on something. You know, I mean, you can tell when somebody is completely original, they come out of nowhere and it blows your mind. See, but that's the thing, like that intuitive me as the listener to you of, of the creator, it's, you can smell it. You just know intuitively you're watching, you just know. And that's someone who has struggled and has worked on that material to make it sing. And I think in having that joy of knowing it's not necessarily original, but certain like in, in creating magic is different, I think, from from writing like you do. And and I think that having that basis of appreciation, like you said, it's not necessarily derivative, but it's it's from an experience. Like I, I've seen a lot of your stuff where you, you know, you write off of your experience and it's so great because I can relate to that. It's nice to have a common denominator. I always say to people that when I write comedy, I don't want it to be really completely autobiographical. I don't want it to be just me, 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 I, I, I. I want it to be a collective sense of what it was like growing up. So it's, it's kind of like handing the baton in a marathon. You're going to pick it up in mid-thought, and you're going to think of something in your life. And that, to me, that's where the sort of the sweetness comes in. It's funny, but also it's poignant or, I mean, in storytelling, it's it's great to remember when, uh, as far as I'm concerned, but more about your life than mine. It's really the art of subtraction. I don't say my age in my act. I don't say the town I grew up in because what I want them to think is I trick-or-treated on their block. <laughs> right? yeah, I yeah, want them to think, yeah. oh, I, I think I played with this guy growing up. We did that game, yeah, right? Yeah. So, but And sometimes it's very specific. So sometimes I generalize and sometimes I pick a product like space food sticks because <laughs> there's an era that takes you when the space program was important, yes. when kids drank Tang because they thought it was healthy. Like it, <laughs> it, it immediately transports you to a time when the space program was everything. Exactly. Right? And, and I think yeah. that that relatedness is a clear part of how people then hitch on to that idea. And here we go. You know, now you can go down all kinds of avenues and roads, no matter what form of art one is talking about. And I, that for me is a super exciting part of, you know, the live entertainment industry and what we do and interacting with people. And that's where I guess the extrovert in me pops out. <laughs> when we first met, it was a magic convention in Las Vegas called Magic Live. And it was sort of the biggest moment in terms of a bringing global magic interest folks yeah. together. And they have did so many beautiful conferences in Las yeah, Vegas yeah. Uh, as Magic yeah. Live. And I had not been to one in some 25 years. So I walked in. It's like I was one of those 
people that they send to space <laughs> and then they come back and they haven't aged and everybody else's <laughs> aged. They're just watching everyone going into the dealer's room, which is a really unique place. Yes. An experience on itself. Oh my gosh, it's hilarious. You interviewed me <laughs> in a situation where I was up in front of an audience of magicians. And to be honest, the art had advanced so much. I didn't think I had too much to share. <laughs> oh, you know? I thought, oh, well, no, but what is funny is when we began to talk about some of the early books that I read, this Dunninger's Illustrated Magic or something, (laughs) what it was, it was all these hand-drawing, elaborate things that made me laugh so hard because everybody out there had had a version of this book. That (laughs) that book was, you know, I don't remember the era that Dunninger was around, but he was like a magician on the radio. Famous like for at that, one yeah, point, yeah. Which, which is hilarious to me. Doing magic tricks on the radio seems like the <laughs> easiest way to become <laughs> Oh, look at that, the elephant appeared. Like yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. can't make any mistakes. But magical thinking is finding a way to make the trick work, no matter how difficult, yes. no matter what you have to do, no matter how you have to go to that trouble. So I, I, I now bring that up to wonder how do you use magical thinking in your other parts of your life, like to solve problems as a business person or as a curator? Is there a way that that applies? Totally. I think one of the ways I really do look at everyday life is it's like a show. And who's my audience? Who am I talking to? Who needs to see what? Where do we need to sprinkle some magic to make an impact here? From standing in line, queuing up at the bank, for example, you know, can you make this person's day with a whatever, you know, just, I think because it's a part of my upbringing, it's a part of my... (laughs) My father is a very strong influence on my life. He would have that signature trick where he would have a bill ready to be, he could change a bill from one denomination to another at any given time. Right, from a $1 bill to a $100 bill, like a big exactly. a big impact. A right? big denomination yeah. and a big impact. And sometimes he would do it to pay for the groceries. Sometimes he would do that <laughs> to, um, you know, to change the tip and to change right. in a somewhat sad moment to a happy moment. So he became really famous in the small city of Victoria for doing this. And my father was an extrovert, no question. And he was really into community. He would go to the Y. He was a big member of the YMCA of the racquetball club. So he became famous for doing this trick all over town. And they they wanted to, to get dad in the, in the locker room. We'll do it when he's in the steam room. There's just no way he can be able to do that. But, you know, that's like you're always on the lookout. You're always ready. You're always listening. My father caught just enough information to be ready. He does this magic trick in the most impossible situation possible for all of these guys. And like, they never, ever, ever bothered him again. They thought this was like, he is God. You don't want to mess with this guy. Sure, it's not the sleeve. He does no sleeves, no shirt, no. There was no sleeve, no shirt. Right, no service, right. But he had a towel, I assume. (laughs) I hope. hope. So they, 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 you know, it's it's that funny situation, but, you know, you learn. You learn about that experience. Like, you got to always have your mind working in a way to, so for me, 
I think of it like an audience. So if we're curating something for the website, it's like, well, you know, not everybody's a magician. What would they want to know? Who is this person? Why is this person interesting? I always ask that. Why is this person interesting? Or if I'm working with small children, I don't assume that they know who Houdini is. It's always interesting to me when I ask children of different ages when they know who Houdini is. It's, are they 10 years old? Are they eight years old? Are they six-year-olds? So it, it, for me, that's also super interesting to see where their level of the world has seeped into them. But I speak to uh, so many different people in different groups that I don't assume anything. And in that, I think magic has taught me to think about things as, I guess, problems to solve. Like, how do we do this? I got to figure that out. I often hear myself saying that, like, how do I work that out? It's from like, I'm trying to lay out a magazine article in InDesign. It's like puzzle making, you know, you've got to make this fit to make this fit because you have this page count. How do you squish the words in? How do you get the caption? Like, you know, you've got to solve this problem, this puzzle. And a magic trick is very similar to that. It's just a part of my thinking now. It's a, it's an innate thing. So you should all be studying magic for creative. <laughs> well, in, in a way, you know, it's funny. I had a conversation with Chris Kenner, mm-hmm. who is David Copperfield's executive producer, and he didn't consider himself to be creative. He considered himself to be a problem solver, that it was logistics. Like, I can figure this out. Totally. And that's a really resonating statement for me. I do shy away from this idea of being a creative person, but I'm a good problem solver. I can I can roll up my sleeves. I can I can noodle stuff out. You know, it's like, okay, how is that going to happen? How am I going to get, you know, this material to that location in the most efficient way without breaking anything? You know, like you've got to solve that problem. Well, you know, in magic, how is that any different from material dematerializing it and rematerializing it? I like that. I mean, it's yeah. it's an interesting problem that we do kind of import our skill sets, right? So yeah. Now you mentioned children a little bit earlier. So I want to dive into a program called My Magic Hands, which was a program you did with at-risk youth. So Mm -hmm. tell me how they respond. I imagine that's a very powerful thing to put things in their hands or to demonstrate to them. Tell me a little bit about it. It's really one of my most precious projects at Magicana, one that I'm extremely proud of. In Magicana's uh, arsenal of programs, we really had this cornerstone for community outreach programs. So the children were one side, the seniors were the other. So the children's program is My Magic Hands. It's a teaching program, but it's built on gradual blocks of, of learning. So week one depends on week two, and that adds on. But the whole point is that week one, we don't know anything. And by week eight, we have a show to do. We're going to do a show together. And that, you tell kids that at week one, they freak out. (laughs) Like, how am I going to do a show? I can't do that. I said, well, I don't expect you to know. So let's fill in the blocks. And the whole metaphor of this journey together, we work on learning a magic trick. We learn the technique first. Then we learn how to execute that tech. We learn how to practice, which is different from rehearsing. We learn how to script. We learn how to then choreograph that movement so that we can do the show. We have a dress rehearsal, then we do a show. And it's amazing because these are life skills. You know, we talk about transmittable skills. So we're teaching kids how to problem solve, how to be communicative, how to address a group so that they will listen to you and how to to promote public speaking without fear. And I was working at at at-risk youth, and that has a wide-ranging definition purposely because some kids we were working with were in communities that had some very stigmatized and stereotyped neighborhoods that they had to to work within and limited resources. But magic 
was one of these things that if someone had a deck of cards, a piece of paper, a pencil, uh, perhaps, you know, any other little small household element from cups to spoons, and, you know, we could do all kinds of neat things. And we learned to manufacture things, but we also gave the kids some stuff too. And it was this idea that magic can be built but you're the practitioner of it. And that was a very powerful experience for the kids because we went from week one, not knowing anything to week eight, seeing, seeing these kids stand up and perform was a very life altering experience for many people, but especially their parents and their, and they're like, and when I worked with at-risk youth with, um, at the hospital with the therapist, the occupational therapist working with kids with uh, physical rehabilitation, it's a very powerful thing for me to see because the children have to work it out. Some of my at-risk youth had trouble reading. Some of them had trouble writing. Some of them were, weren't able to move their arms to, to speak. Some weren't able to see all kinds of different limitations. Well, these are just things that we're going to have to work through. Talk about problem solving. It was like, okay, your arm can't move. All right, let's work this out. I really found that that was interesting because they took that from me as a magician, but they wouldn't take it from their occupational therapist as a therapist. Because it's fun. I think that, and also the self-confidence, if you're able to do something with a rubber band in your hands and you figure it out, and then you're able to go and wow the next person, Yes, there's an immediate gratification from I mean, it's a little more difficult when, let's say, you do you learn to juggle or something because there's a lot more dropping and a lot more. Yeah, there's a, yeah. Well, there is a there is a period of time between A to B in that skill development, and magic has this wonderful possibility where we can create while we have those experiences too. We can create instant success with certain things and mixing it up by creating some instant and some more practiced technique really gave the kids an arsenal of of learning, of success, of achievement, of wanting to do more. And in the therapy programs we did at the children's hospital, it was terrific because we could get kids to then practice. We could get then kids to, to do it on a repeated basis. Well, this is their occupational therapy. So stacking cups was a big deal. Or I have all these crazy rope tricks where, you know, you have to move your arms in these very elaborate patterns without letting go of the ends and you could still make a knot appear. And this, the therapist saw me explaining this and they thought, this is what we've been trying to get the kids to do for forever, for like buttoning up their, their own uh, button-down shirts or being able to, to work their arms so that they can develop the muscles to, to do something simple, like taking off their T-shirt on their own and putting it on on their own. Like these are, sure. it's amazing what we take for granted, right? So, Well, magic is a really very interesting distractor, yes, right? Yes, yes. Because during that moment of learning and during that moment of performing and building the confidence and whatever, you don't realize that your hands and your muscles and your, <laughs> like, you're not saying no to it because you want the wonder to come That's about. exactly it. You are willing to put up with the pain. For a lot of the kids that I was dealing with had a lot of therapy issues where it was painful and they would just push past that in a way that they didn't register it as pain anymore. This was an achievement to get to the next step of having that trick successfully have an outcome. So this is where I was really, you know, in the driver's seat as the magician. If I established myself as a magician with these kids as their teacher, I wasn't their friend, I was their teacher, which is different. But that created so many other possibilities for these kids. I was so, always so proud of them at the end because they pushed past what they didn't think that they could do. 
and always, always, I did this for 15, 16 years, this program. So we've had a little bit of setback with the current climate of COVID restrictions, but we're going to work around that too. You know, part of that is figuring it out. So (laughs) it just keeps going. Somebody said about creativity that artists don't get down to work until the pain of working (laughs) is exceeded by the pain of not working. There you go. (laughs) Like, like that's the moment that they go, oh, I may as well do this. because Exactly, know. exactly. And I think that that's kind of an interesting thing too. You know, I as you and I were speaking about the idea of creativity and perhaps some ideas on, you're asking me, for example, how do I break up my day? I will stall until the last possible second. <laughs> I had to write an article. So I found myself cleaning out my refrigerator. I'm organizing my drawers. I'm doing the laundry. Anything, anything, but I'm actually working. You know, I think my brain is actually working on that problem, noodling it out, organizing thoughts. And then when I finally have to sit down because it's midnight and it's due at 7 a.m., I'll pound it out. <laughs> I think almost everyone listening that has any creative gene is uh, relates to the art of procrastination. Yes. Um, <laughs> It's hilarious. In fact, I read something that the artists who continue and the artists who quit share common emotional ground. Yes. Right? Yes. And there's only one big distinguishing difference, and that is that one learned how not to quit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because I have so many friends and so many people in my life that will say to me, I used to play the trombone or I used to. I always wish I could pick up the guitar. You can stop wishing about like mm-hmm. you are absolutely in control of picking up the guitar. So it doesn't mean that you can play a rock concert the next day, but often the biggest obstacle is the person themselves mm-hmm. by assuming that my family needs me for this, or I can't stop to do this. And even if you take it in a bite-sized pieces, I think that there's value in investment. Creativity takes so many forms. I mentioned to you about talking about your photography once. You go, I'm not a photographer. Like we, <laughs> no, we, we automatically do that. And I don't, I saw some yes. pictures that you took in Africa. I don't know if you were on a safari. Yes, I was on that safari. Yeah, I know, yeah. but they're like National Geographic things. They're moments <laughs> captured in time. And to me, amazing photography. This is like a bow hunter. You've got to have the patience to capture that shot at that moment. It's not an accident how it's composed. Sometimes there's a moment (laughs) where time freezes and it's unbelievable, but you're looking through that lens differently than you're looking through your human eye, right? Totally. That's something I did learn from from working with uh, all of these card magic books that we've put together. That's primarily what I've been making uh, my photos from was this need to create illustrations to demonstrate technique. Well, I have to identify what is being done. And some of this card work is so fine. I had to learn how to illustrate what was being, what we were writing and what we were trying to communicate. It's pointless to put something up there that has no meaning to to the text. So it was really interesting that my brain read what it needed to do. I then see an a human model of it, but now I have to communicate that as a photo. And that was a really interesting process for me to learn. I do appreciate the art of photography very, very differently, having struggled so desperately with some of this crazy stuff that I've had to do. And I had the great pleasure of working with a very dear friend of mine, a legend in magic who recently passed away, Johnny Thompson, because he had to describe everything that was going on for me as I'm photographing it. (laughs) I'm learning so much from this guy. I mean, 
It's stuff that you can't write. It's stuff you can't necessarily buy. It's stuff you have to hear, learn, and experience. So that was like such a gift for me. And I'm, I'm crawling all over this poor man as I'm trying to photograph these crazy angles and because we're, we're, we're exposing the magic we're, we're exposing how he is, he is making these magical things happen. Well, there's work to that and we have to describe that work. And it, as you said, it's covert. So like I'm under tables right. <laughs> sideways, <laughs> I'm but, on top of them. Right. It's, but it's, you had that experience <laughs> from working behind your dad and reaching into his pocket. So you could, yeah. you could sneak up on it, right? That's, <laughs> I, I have some advantages of being, I have some advantages. That um, well, listen, I have a couple of things. One, you mentioned uh, having lost Johnny recent in recent year, this last year, along with a number of other terrific influences that we've had in the magic. And most of the names would, most people wouldn't know, but certainly anybody in our field would. And we, we continue to sort of have that legacy above us as we age sort of turn into the influences it very much in your archives and your library. But I mean, that sort of brings me back around to the power and importance of that is that how do we keep that alive? Those mentors totally, and tutors. Yes. And I know that you lost your dad many years ago and, yeah. and also a husband. So I look to you as a person that when my dad passed, that's a whole nother thing of how how and we're doing it now with living in a pandemic that people are grieving so many mm-hmm. things that really conflict with the creative spirit. It is difficult. I unfortunately have had a great deal of loss in my life. At a, it's not you're young or you're old, but I had very strong influences, very influential support networks, and and deep, deep, deep connections to me from my dad to my husband, and many, sadly, very a lot in between. I have. As my sister likes to tease me with, I have a lot of older friends who are, you know, in their 70s, 80s, 90s. <laughs> You're not sneaking up behind them and taking pictures, are you? Like scaring them. Okay. I'm not. I'd hate I'm to not. have you implemented in any. <laughs> Implicated? Yeah. No, I'm innocent. Okay. But I, I think that it's tough and I had to learn to kind of move around this. And you and I have spoken a great deal about this and grief is really, really powerful and it can stop people or it's going to really change how you see the world and appreciate what you have. And I think right now in this time of pandemic, when we have a lot of restrictions placed upon us, we have a great deal of our liberties, our, our, our taken for granted liberties removed. Like I used to travel like you so much. It was a part of my absolute everyday living. And now that's gone from my life. I don't know who I am at first. I don't know what I'm supposed to do because I should be going to the airport or coming back from something or getting ready for something. So we have to find ways of accepting. I've stopped fighting grief. I learned very early that fighting grief was a bad thing for me. And when it overwhelms, it, so it, it ebbs and it flows and it gets bigger sometimes and it shrinks sometimes. And that's basically how I've learned to deal with it. And that skill, that unfortunate skill that I had to learn because of this loss has given me now the support and the tools to move past a very difficult time. I'm living on my own now. I'm used to being with my family all the time, but my family doesn't live in Toronto. So I don't have my immediate resources beside me. And that's, I have to admit, it was tough at, at first. So I said to you once, you kind of got to bow down to that power to acknowledge it and to let it 
push past you. And when you do, that wave pushes past you. you what happens? You move through to the other side. And that yeah. was a really profound thing for me to discover, both with grief and now with learning how to continue to find meaning in my work, in my life, even in this very unprecedented, insanely weird time of this pandemic. I think that it has taught me how to survive. I did ask if you would have, if you had anything you could share with our listener that might be considered their creative jumpstart for the week. Is there something that comes to mind in in your field or in just in general? I have two recommendations. Um, the first okay. one's going to be easier than the second one, <laughs> but both are possible. <laughs> I have to say that you got to not do what you love to do all the time. I love magic. I love performing magic. I love practicing magic. I love magic, but I have also learned to take up other things. And for example, you and I have shared recipes. Well, I love to cook and that creative process has been so powerful to me. Again, in this time of isolation, I've learned to take care of myself. I've learned to be creative inside of how I, I want to dream up a meal, for example. I take great pride in that because I'm doing it for myself. I'm, I'm taking care of my body, but I'm also creating something really interesting and new and fun. And that is so easy to do. You know, just learn how to do something else. The other thing that really changed for me in terms of my creativity and appreciation for magic was when I started to learn how to dance again. Now, as a little child, I was always in ballet class, okay? And I, I didn't really love it, but I was okay at it. But, you know, my mom had to kind of like drag us there. Because it was a thing. It's like piano lessons for an eight-year-old, right? Like some kids just take to it naturally. And as much as I loved it and I enjoyed it, it was not always my thing. But when I learned much later to do ballroom dancing and salsa dancing, all of a sudden it was fun. And I found so much joy inside of that. I got into Argentine tango and that was profound. It changed it completely for me because I appreciated magic so much more on so many other levels. It was really an eye-opening experience and deeply profound. And I, I think anything with, with music, with movement, with expression is a really important hobby to consider from just doodling. Like you said earlier, it's not, you're not going to do a rock concert the next day if you want to pick up a guitar. What the experience of what I learned creatively inside of that other art was profound and how it exploded my mind on the, on the things that I love like magic. So I would highly recommend that and definitely encourage anybody to, to take up Something fun and simple that drives your passion, but you got to go outside of your writing or your, your, you know, your creative art stuff, your visual art stuff. You got to go outside. And, and I have definitely found the massive benefits, massive dividends from that. Good. I like that. There's a thing called fishing the birds. Have you ever heard of this? No. This is old timey fisherman stuff. It's almost what you're describing, which is to do the opposite of what you're thinking in a way, right? Fishing the birds yeah. is that you don't look in the water for the good fishing hole and try to spot where the fish are. You look at something else. So if you're looking at the birds circling over, they can see, they're going to dive down. They're telling you where the fish are. It means that going to a museum on a day and looking at something is going to put your mind in another place. And when you come back to your practicing your art or doing your thing, you're coming at it with sort of a fresh perspective, right? Totally. Yeah. And, totally. and oftentimes in my work, storytelling, it's the most unusual thing that I've never done before where the most interesting story 
comes. I was in practicing this tango move and I had this epiphany about a card thing. And it's like, <laughs> right. but by moving my hand like this, I can do this. And all of a sudden that frees up that. And I'm like, oh my God. And it was, but it's, it's that exactly what you said by moving ourselves in these different tactile experiences, we create so many other opportunities for our brain to then just sort of exhale and take in a whole new environment. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having this dance with me today. This was really, really fun to have this You're conversation. You're a great partner. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I think I stepped on your toes a couple of times. <laughs> I don't uh, think so. But on behalf of my producer, Amanda Rosenberg, and myself, it was our pleasure to have you on Creativity in Captivity, and we hope to have you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Wizbang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot .fun, because .com is not fun. Cheers.